covering two verses today, verses 1 and 2 of the Gospel of John. If you would stand for the reading of God's Word. You guys all know this. Um, But in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in in the beginning with God. Heavenly Father, we pray you are blessed by the reading of your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's kind of fitting that we take up with the Gospel of John tonight. Um, After we finished the book of Ephesians last spring, preaching through that, you guys remember the six chapters there, where Paul, we found out uh, who we are in Christ, and then he explained how we are to walk in Christ. Um, And, you know, all our studies should be this wonderful focus on Christ, because he is the focus of all Scripture. He was anticipated in the Old Testament. He was revealed in the Gospels. He's explained in the epistles. And he is glorified in the book of Revelation. My task today is to kick off our study in the Gospel of John with that same focus that John had. And that is to present the glory of Jesus Christ as the only one to put your faith in. Now the Gospel of John begins with a prologue, an an introduction really, and extends through verse 18 The prologue of the Gospel of John is like the front deck of a house, or for you city slickers, the front porch of a house. It's what you enter before you go into the house. But it really, the prologue frames the salient points that the rest of the Gospel must be seen through. Kind of like lenses that give you focus, crystal clear focus. And when you get the lenses right in the prologue, you see all the ways that John is saying, here's how I want you to see the Messiah in the highest way possible. So that way, when you get to chapter 5 of John's Gospel, you can better understand what Jesus means when he says he's being accused of be- making himself equal with God. And when you get to chapter 10, when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, or chapter 14, when Jesus says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or chapters 14 and 15, when Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit, which the Father will send in his name, Or chapter 16, when Jesus says, I came from the Father and am returning to the Father. And then chapter 17, you know, well, the high priestly prayer, when Jesus prays to the Father and asks to regain the glory that he had with the Father before the the world began. It is through the prologue, the full picture is seen of what is being revealed, kind of like pulling a sheet off a giant statue. And the great reveal, the big reveal is Christ his origin, his person, and his work. So no other book has such a marvelous beginning as the Gospel of John. Even when compared to the Synoptic Gospels, which which were written much earlier. And just as a reminder, there's four Gospels, three are Synoptic, and then you have the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called Synoptic because they record with a common view. And that's really what Synoptic means. It means together sight with those covering many of the same events through Jesus' life. And we see that more of a focus in the synoptics is historical, it's narrative. And and the way that each of the synoptics begins reflects this. Matthew begins by emphasizing the humanity of Christ with his genealogy all the way back to Abraham, then explains his incarnation and his birth in Bethlehem. Mark begins with the forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist, at the Jordan River in Christ's baptism. Luke begins in Jerusalem with Zechariah and Elizabeth and the birth of John the Baptist. 
My point is much of the narrative is shared, though, through the three synoptics, synoptic gospels. In comparison, 93% of the gospel of John is not included in the synoptics. And verses 1 and 2 we're looking at tonight is no exception. These verses soar right out of the gate with Christ in light of eternity. The focus being Christ as God here in the Gospel of John. Matthew focuses on Christ as King, while Mark focuses on Christ as servant, and Luke focuses on Christ as man. Now, there are wonderful examples in the synoptics, reinforcing the deity of Christ. One example in the Gospel of Matthew, and Peter, you guys know it, he responds to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? And how does Peter respond? He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Another example is the amazing preview of the second coming of Christ's deity on the Mount of Transfiguration that shows up in Mark, Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. But there's something very different about the Gospel of John. Daryl Bach described this difference this way. He said the synoptics view Jesus from the earth up. John views Jesus from heaven down. It is the gospel of John that is unique in that it seems to zoom out, kind of like Google Earth, the scope of the camera, drawing up, widening out from Bethlehem, up from the Jordan River, even Jerusalem, all the way to eternity. As if John wants to expand out the view of Christ even beyond what the human mind can comprehend. And there's no more ex higher and exalted introduction of any figure in human history than the introduction offered for Jesus Christ here in the Gospel of John as God. Martin Luther called the Gospel of John the one true gospel. In the last few paragraphs of Luther's preface to his German translation of the New Testament written 500 years ago, 1522, imagine that, he answers the question, which are the truest and noblest books of the New Testament? This is, what, this is what Luther said. He said, therefore, John's gospel is the one fine, true, and chief gospel and is far, far to be preferred over the other three and placed high above them. Now, we all love John 1 because it screams the deity of Christ, that Jesus Christ is God. And that is confirmed all through Scripture. But we have this amazing prologue here to get the true unveiling, the true introduction of the Son of God. And what's interesting is John never describes himself as the author of this gospel, but rather as the disciple that Jesus loves. And I guess if you get to write your own gospel, you get that privilege, right? But there's more to this identification. John alone in the New Testament is described this way. The parallel in the Old Testament of someone described in a similar fashion is Daniel. The LSB describes the angel Gabriel addressing Daniel as, for you are highly esteemed. But I like the ESV. It says, you are greatly loved by God, speaking of Daniel. Now, what did these two have in common? A prophet from the Old Testament and a disciple from the New Testament. They are both given the greatest revelation of God's eschaton. The me meaning the last things. Daniel is given the keystone to end time prophecy with Daniel 9, while John is given the prophecy of the book of Revelation. But it's not just that, just, not just the revelation of the last things that they've been given. They've been given insight into the identity of Jesus Christ. Both John and Daniel 
saw a reincarnate appearance of Christ called a Christophany, an almost identical Christophany. Daniel's vision on the banks of the Tigris, recorded in Daniel 10, and John's vision while in the spirit on the Isle of Pasmos in Revelation 1. Daniel and John surely have been blessed with great revelation, and they are powerful. But so are the testimonies of others who came face to face with Christ. It is in the first chapter of John's, uh, the Gospel of John that we see Andrew make an important connection, a connection that reaches back to the whole of the Old Testament prophecy. You guys remember when Jesus finds Philip, and then Philip finds Nathaniel, and he says to Nathaniel, he says, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now this statement connects Jesus to being the fulfillment, not just of the Pentateuch, but the entire Old Testament scripture, the Tanakh. Philip was saying, we found the Messiah. We have found the Messiah. It's what every Jewish child was raised to look forward to. So Christ is the fulfillment of that Jewish Savior, that would usher in the kingdom, the times of refreshing for Israel. Isaiah 9 states, For a child is born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David or, and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. Now, though this prophecy of Isaiah includes both his humanity and his deity, the Jews were more focused on the Messiah being an earthly king, right? Why? Because they, they looked forward someone, to someone to break the shackles of the Roman oppression. But throughout the Gospel of John, we see this unveiling of his deity, as Jewish eyes are opened, such as Nathaniel and his testimony. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And John the Baptist's testimony. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then later, John the Baptist is more emphatic. And he says, I myself have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So clearly, the Gospel of John is focused on the deity of Christ as the cornerstone of his case, really the first rock laid in the foundation. It is the most crucial rock, and that is the true identity of the Messiah, an identity that most of Israel did not know. John the Baptist described Jesus as he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. John, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was determined that the world would know Jesus Christ, meaning believe in Jesus Christ. And we have that at the end of the Gospel of John, where he tells us his purpose in writing this Gospel. In, verse, in chapter 20, verse 31, he says, But these things have been written, so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing have life in his name. And what John presents from verse 1, chapter 1, is the true Christ, that John wants us to believe the true Christ, because the true deity of Christ is the epicenter around which all our belief builds. He's the beginning of Christianity. He is the end of Christianity. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. And that's why Paul would say, for me to live 
is Christ. He is the object of our believing, our confessing, our worshiping, our obeying, and our adoring. He is the object of our faith. And our faith is no greater than its object, who is Jesus Christ. And John is saying that object must be in this true Christ. This Christ, who is before time, who is eternally with the Father, and is God. To believe in a lesser God, a lesser Christ, is not to be saved at all. The second reason for John beginning the prologue this way is defending against heresies that threaten the true gospel, particularly Gnosticism. The threat of Gnosticism was forefront was at the forefront of his mind when he wrote his epistles, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, which were written around the same time. Now, the Gnostics in their religion, they'd taken root in the first century, and they really had infected the early church. The Gnostics believed in a, a secret knowledge. They, they possessed a hidden knowledge. It's very similar to what the health, wealth, prosperity cults teach today. But more specifically, they believed in dualism which was a separation of all things spiritual, which they considered good, against all things that were flesh, which they considered evil. So, of course, they denied the incarnation of Christ, the virgin birth, as well as the bodily resurrection. They also believed that Jesus Christ was not deity, but created. They believed he was the highest of created beings, higher than angels, but certainly not equal with God. So when John launches into verse 1 and 2, of the Gospel of John, understand that he thoroughly obliterates Gnosticism. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, I do have to point out, as we look back at John's thesis statement for why he wrote this Gospel, that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and have life in his name. This assumes there's a focus on those that lack belief. So we can look at the Gospel of John as the truest evangelical book in the Bible. For no other book of the Bible is written specifically to unbelievers to, in fact, believe. The word pastuo is used 98 times in the, in the verb form. In the noun form, it doesn't occur at all. So active faith, active believing is at the heart of this Gospel. John omitted Jesus' genealogy in the gospel of john he omitted his birth his baptism his temptation the exercising of demons prayer parables the transfiguration the institution of the lord's supper the agony in gethsemane the ascension but instead john focuses on jesus ministry in jerusalem on the jewish feasts on jesus private conversations with individuals and his preparation of the disciples for what laid ahead But even before John gets to all that, he must make crystal clear Christ's eternality, his unity in the Trinity with the Father and his deity. And that's really our outline today. Verses 1 and 2, for verses 1 and 2, that answer, who is Christ? Who is Christ? First, his eternality in the beginning. Second, his unity with the Father and his deity as God. So point one is eternality. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. Now, it should go without saying who the Word was. He's a Logos. But if you have any doubt, it is verse 14 of chapter 1 that adds perfect clarity to who the Logos is. It says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Of course, this speaks of his incarnation. Literally, as the Greek Septuagint says, tabernacling among us, literally tenting among us. John says he was living among us and we saw his glory. Likely Christ's brief revelation in glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. But I do like the Good News Bible translation of this verse. For verse 1, it reads, In the beginning, the Word already existed. I love that translation. Now, I'm no Greek scholar, but the Greek here is so revealing, particularly in how John uses his verb forms. Whenever John refers to the logos, for example, when he says, in the beginning was, the verb form, the logos, the word, interestingly, John uses the imperfect form for this active verb. And he uses only this active verb, the imperfect form, every time he refers to the Logos. And by using the imperfect form, John is saying the Logos has eternally existed. Why? Because the imperfect form in the Greek is ongoing continuous action in the past, meaning continuous action that doesn't have a point of origination. It's like saying, I was eating. See, no, no point of origination, no beginning, And John is so intentional here with this Greek because every other verb form in the first 13 13 verses of the text, he uses the aorist form. For example, when he talks about the world, all things made through him. There came a man named John. When he's talking about anything else but Christ, he uses the aorist form. Now, what's the aorist form? The aorist form is the simplest way of speaking about a past action in the Greek. A simple point of action would be, instead of I was eating, simply I ate. That's the aorist. A simple point of action, but it has a beginning and it has an end. The logos, using the imperfect, is saying the logos has always existed. There's no point of origination. And all that to say, John is saying with his verb tenses that this is no accident. The Logos, Jesus Christ, is eternal. He, like the Father and the Holy Spirit, has no beginning and no end. Now, we must also realize that when we go to verse 1 of of Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, John, by using the in the beginning here in the Gospel of John, was making an important connection to creation, that Jesus Christ was already existing. The Word was in the beginning, and the Word was existing, and the Word was creating? Yes, He was existing, and He was creating. Go to Colossians 1, and we're going to look at verse 13 through 20. And we're just going to break in on one of Paul's notoriously long run-in sentences here in verse 13b. But uh, it starts, it's very interesting, starts with the Father who rescued us, and then it immediately goes to the Son. This is how it reads in verse 13. It says, Who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love. Now the rest of this is Christ, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, 
And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And I'm citing this passage to prove the eternality of Jesus Christ as God. But the JCs cite this passage to try and prove that Jesus Christ was created. And of course, they have to skip everything that comes after firstborn of all creation. Because they will say, see, he's born. Has that happened to any of you talking to Jehovah? They go right to this passage, don't they? See, they go, see, he was born as the firstborn. But the Greek for firstborn refers not to birth order, but as ranking one, as the preeminent one. In Jeremiah 31, 9, it reads, For I am a father to Israel. This is, this is Yahweh speaking. I am a father to Israel, but Ephraim is my firstborn. But there's a problem. Manasseh was the firstborn in birth order, not Ephraim. So it's saying that Ephraim, even though he was born second, is the ranking one, is the preeminent one. Prototokos is the word, the Greek word for firstborn. It's where we get the word prototype. Christ was not born, but is the prototype we are to con- be conformed to. So always remember that, prototokos. When they come to your door and they say, see firstborn, that's prototokos in the Greek. So as we look back at verse 14, the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth, we have to ask, how can Christ be the firstborn and the only begotten? See, that doesn't make any sense, unless it's referring again to rank or preeminence, but not birth order. But look at the wonderful declaration of the deity of Christ that the JCs have to ignore. All things created in him, through him, and for him. But consistent with John 1, the statement, in the beginning was the word, Colossians said he was before all things, and in him all things hold together. And we say, of course he was before all things, for he is eternal. He must have existed before he created all things, before the world was when he was in full glory. Remember what Jesus prayed to the Father in the high priestly prayer in John 17. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. His glory was veiled on earth when he was in his incarnation. That's the only way that we understand Philippians 2, right? Which reads, Though existing, Although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the only way we understand Philippians 2, is to understand that. Now let's go to Hebrews 1. 
Hebrews 1. Now, this is another book like Colossians and Ephesians and the Gospel of John that is so front-loaded with truth, just front-loaded. And there's so much here, but we're going to key, key in on starting in verse 8. And this is glorious if you've never really interacted with this section of Scripture. And I, I would like you guys to keep your finger here, because even after we go past this, we're going to come back to it. Uh, so keep your finger here and... Uh, in Hebrews 1, but this is the Father speaking to the Son. This is stunning. It says, every time I read it, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of, scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your commandment, companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all wear out like a garment. And like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same and your years will not come to an end. First, isn't it wonderful to hear Jesus Christ being called God by God? Isn't it? The Father calls the Son God when He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The Father can call the Son God, but the JCs can't. The one thing every cult has in common is they deny the deity of Christ. So we have to be careful of them. Second, Jesus Christ's throne is forever and ever, as verse 8 indicates, when it says, Your throne, O God, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Remember, the Father is speaking of Christ in verse 10 when he says, You, Lord, in the beginning founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. And verse 12, But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Now we take all this back to verse 1 in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And that is the only way we can understand the statement of, by John the Baptist later in verse 30 of, of chapter 1, speaking of Christ, when he says, this is he, speaking of Christ, John the Baptist speaking of Christ, whom I said, after me comes a man who has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. All right, who's the older cousin, John the Baptist or Jesus? Yeah, but remember what uh, the angel Gabriel told Mary. Remember, he said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the holy child will be called the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for who, who, her who was called barren. Now, if John the Baptist was six months older than his cousin, Jesus, why did John the Baptist say he existed before me? Because he existed before John the Baptist. And he existed before the world began. Because he's never ceased to exist Jesus Christ is eternal, and he can give eternal life to whoever he wishes. In John 10, it says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, ever, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So you can't give what you don't have. So we looked at his eternality in the beginning, verse 1. Next, his unity with the Father, and the Word was with God. He was with the Father because He was always with the Father. The Father and I are one. 
They are one in essence with the Holy Spirit. They are the Godhead. They are Elohim, plural. They are three persons, one in essence. We have no idea of the closeness within the Godhead. We cannot comprehend the intimacy, the connectedness within the three members of the Trinity. The triune relationship, remember, was only broken one time between the Father and the Son. And in a strange way, that very break between the Father and the Son revealed the closeness they shared. Just consider the agony of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was just hours away from the cross. And it, and it reads, and, the, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Jesus wept as he looked forward to his coming break with the Father. It isn't the coming pain. It's not the bloody cross that he's looking forward to that brought despair. His struggle was so intense because he had never been separated from the Father. He had never been made the bearer of the wrath of God for sin, and it shattered him. He was and is and for eternity will be sinless. And he's always known the bliss of the perfect fellowship, the perfect communion with the Father, the perfect love within the Trinity. But now the Father would turn away, for Christ became sin for us, and the Father cannot look upon sin. The agony of the Son, of the Son apart from the Father tells us everything about their closeness, of the Word that has always been with God. So in the beginning was the Word. Jesus Christ is eternal. The Word was with God. Jesus Christ was, is, and will be eternally with the Father. Now point three, the Word was God. There, these are four of the most magnificent words in Scripture. The Word was God. There's beauty in the brevity of these four words. There's an epiphany in the implication of these four words. If the story of the universe was written... These four words would be the headline. The Word was God. And remember, John always uses that imperfect tense we talked about when referring to the Word, meaning continuous, ongoing, past action. We must get this part right. If we get this wrong, it doesn't matter what we're right about. The God who created and upholds the universe is Jesus Christ. And yet this Jesus Christ became flesh and walked among us. God died to save his people. We believe in this God. We believe in this word, but we believe in Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ is God, is what he's saying. Just as Thomas, doubting Thomas, declared, my Lord and my God. There are so many, so many scriptures that exalt his deity. But let's look at two that are absolutely undeniable and they're absolutely remarkable. The first is John 12. When Scripture explains the reason that some are not able to believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So in John 12, it reads, For this reason they could not believe. This is 30, verse 39, by the way. For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their hearts. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and return, and I heal them. Now, verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke about him. That's talking about Christ. So where in Scripture did Isaiah see Jesus' glory? 
in the vision of the throne room in Isaiah 6. So this is Isaiah 6. In the year of King Isaiah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up with a train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called out, while the house of God was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. This literally means I am disintegrating. He's coming undone. Woe is me, for I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. He just saw Jesus Christ. And John 12 confirms that, right? It's a beautiful example of Scripture, interpreting Scripture, making clear Isaiah saw Jesus Christ. The second declaration of the deity of Christ is in Psalm 102. In Psalm 102. And uh, this one's glorious as well. It's verse 1. It says, O Yahweh, hear my prayer, and let my cry for help come to you. Now you're reading that and you're going, man, this clearly that's a believer crying out in anguish to God the Father, right? Now jump down to verse 25 to 27. Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you'll remain, and all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing you will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Does that sound familiar? It should. We just covered that in Hebrews, didn't we? Revealing to us just who is this Yahweh being prayed to in Psalm 102. In Hebrews 1.8, the Father exalting His Son, Jesus Christ, calling Him a God. We'll just reread it because it's worth it. This is extraordinary. It says, But of this, God, of this Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. companions. And now almost word for word from Psalm 102. And you, Lord, in the beginning founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all wear out like a garment. And like a mantle, you'll roll them up. But a garment, like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. These connections are as glorious as they are undeniable. And uh, if you ever have a Jehovah witness on your doorstep, when you go to Psalm 102, it, in their own Bible, you can grab their Bible out of their hand. And you can go to Psalm 102 and start in verse 1. And it says, O Jehovah, hear my prayer. And you ask them, who is that? And they'll say, Jehovah God, because it's all Jehovah God to them, right? Well, then you explain this. You make this connection to them and ask, who's he talking about in Hebrews? He's talking about the Son. So Jehovah God is Christ. Your Jehovah God of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. I mean, it's clear as day. So um, that's a little tip there when, the, when they show up on your, uh, on your doorstep. 
Um, but these are, these are amazing, and they only reinforce the powerful declarations of those first two verses of the prologue of the Gospel of John, of the deity of Christ, a deity who is eternal, and a deity who is forever with the Father. These are the lenses through which John wants us to see Jesus Christ revealed in the rest of his Gospel. He is our treasured possession. How can we not worship such an exalted being? who gave up his glory, he gave up his perfect, unbroken communion in the Godhead to lay down his life. And the more we plumb the depths of the greatness of his deity, the more we're confronted with not only the great chasm that exists between the exalted God, Jesus Christ, and the lowly, fallen man or woman, but we're confronted with the amazing grace that bridged that chasm. Jesus Christ, God incarnate the life and light of eternity, humbling himself to save those in darkness who have only earned death. This will be the theme of our gratitude because he is the theme of our gratitude as we cry, holy, holy, holy for eternity. Amen? All right, we'll have Noel come up and wrap us up and we'll, we'll sing some holy, 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 right, Noel? Um, but uh, let's pray. Lord, it is a privilege to cover these verses that exalt your Son and exalt you and declare Him, uh, declare His eternality, declare His unity with you, and declare that He truly is God. Uh, and we, uh, we are just so excited. It, it, these, these are thrilling verses of Scripture. And uh, we love you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.